Well, Father, we come before you and we look forward to hearing your word. Father, as we turn the pages of Scripture and as we advance through the life of Jesus Christ, we know that you set the agenda for the preaching, that this message at this time is a product of your providence. This is what you want us to hear. And Father, I pray that there will be a a certain amount of expectation as we hear from you today, that your word will come forth and speak to our hearts, challenge, convict, and comfort us. In Christ's name, amen. Well, when I was in the second grade, I was at a sleepover. By the way, all the bad stuff happened at sleepovers, it seemed like, growing up. And I got my hands on a graphic novel entitled Dracula. I'm like, Dracula? And I remember just all these vivid pictures of vampires and all that stuff. And I was kind of introduced uh, just to that concept. And it, it really spooked me to the point where I took popsicle sticks, formed them into crosses, and hung them on the window to prevent vampires from coming into the window. And that phase lasted for a while, and eventually I was comforted by the fact that vampires do not exist. So there you go. But then I came across something else. I had a VHS player, and my parents recorded The Exorcist. Oh, yeah. For a kid who's spooked by vampires, that's the wrong movie to watch. So I watched it. And if you're familiar with the plot, it's about a demon who possesses a young girl who was approximately my age when I was watching the movie. And this is the thing. This is the reason why it it was so terrifying is this young girl becomes a genuine monster, right? She becomes a monster. A demon inhabits her. She becomes a supernatural, vomit-spewing monster. And the thing with demon possession is as you are watching it, you think to yourself, Under the right circumstances, I can become the monster as well. And I was troubled, and I I asked my friend's mom, who was a born-again Christian, can that happen today? And she said, yes. Now, in our day and age, demon possession is something that, well, psychologists and psychiatrists and the medical professionals and, and those who do not believe in the supernatural take great pains to explain away. Uh, What you see in the Bible are cases of uh, multiple personality disorder, uh, some other form of mental illness, maybe there's epilepsy, but with the pre-scientific understanding, they would just explain this as demon possession. But that's not the way the Bible understands itself, and what we're going to do today is we're going to turn to the first miracle of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. The first time Jesus exercises his spiritual power and authority is seen in a miracle that we read about in Luke 4, 31-37. And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath, and they were astonished at his teaching. For his word possessed authority. 
And in the synagogue there was a man who had a spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. This is spiritual warfare. This is a clash of the spirits. Jesus, right, was conceived when the Holy Spirit came upon him. He began his ministry when he was anointed and baptized by the Holy Spirit. He was led by the Spirit into the wilderness where he was tempted by the prince of the unclean spirit, Satan, in three separate occasions. And then the Spirit empowers his preaching. And the Spirit leads him back to his hometown of Nazareth where he preaches in the synagogue about how the Spirit of the Lord has come upon him to preach this gospel ministry. And now he returns and he has a spiritual encounter. This is spiritual warfare, where he encounters a man possessed by a demon. Now, in our day and age, when we talk about exorcisms, uh, you might be tempted to think, well, that's just like a Catholic thing. Or, or perhaps that's something that you find out in one of those far-off Pentecostal churches. Or, or perhaps uh, you might think about those people who read all those Frank Peretti books and took them to be like the next chapter in the New Testament, right? Where there can almost be like this unhealthy infatuation with demons. It's not something that we talk about, not something that we address. No, it just doesn't happen in this day and age. And yet we read in Ephesians 6:12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Right? If we were to kind of peel back this physical realm, what we would see are spirits, unclean spirits, demonic spirits that are not flesh and blood, that are unseen, that are actively at war against Christ and his people. And during the time of Jesus' ministry, Satan did everything he could to oppose Jesus. He tried to disqualify him initially, right? Through a supernatural encounter. And now he's trying to derail his ministry just as it gets going with a demonic confrontation. See, demons are real. I'll get into this a little, a little bit later, but theoretically, demon possession can happen today, and I believe it still does. And that is terrifying, isn't it? And I think, what would I tell little 10-year-old Dave, who was terrified of being 
possessed by a demon or encountering a demon-possessed individual. I, I could say that, you know what, it's highly unlikely that it'll be you, Dave. Just stay away from the Ouija boards and you'll be fine. Don't play tarot cards. Don't play any cards. I don't know. <laughs> or I can point 10-year-old Dave to Jesus, the demon slayer, which 10-year-old Dave would have been intrigued by. Jesus Christ, demon slayer, tell me more. And that is what he is. He is a spiritual warrior. In the synagogue, it's not just a synagogue, it's actually like a cage where he does battle with the demon. And as you see, he prevails and it's not even close. In all of this, Jesus shows that he has more power than this unseen spiritual realm. If you want protection, you turn to him. So what we're going to do is we're going to kind of walk through this text, and then I want to take some, uh, just some reflections on some of the ap applicability uh, about this text in this day and age. And we're going to start with the context. Well, we're going to start with the context, the challenge, uh, the confrontation, and the conclusion. And all of this is going to be pointing to the fact that Jesus Christ is the demon slayer. He's the one who does combat with demons, and he will win every time. So let's look at the, the context, the context, starting in verse 31. And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath, and they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. So Jesus descends from the higher place of Nazareth down to the Sea of Galilee to this northern city called Capernaum. Now, Capernaum is on a major trade route that connects kind of the Mediterranean coastal plain to the city of Damascus. And so a lot of traffic, a lot of freight, a lot of cargo would travel through. And so uh, it would be a popular venue to tax people as they had to pay their duties and their customs. And so they built a Roman garrison there. Um, and uh, it was a place where there's a lot of commerce and people would go from out of the region to Capernaum to do their trade. And so Jesus, whenever he met people from foreign nations, it was usually in that area and in that region. Now, another interesting fact is Galilee wasn't necessarily Galilee of the Jews. It was Galilee of the Gentiles. Later on, we're going to see pig farmers in the region. And they weren't feeding Jews, they are feeding a large Gentile population. There are a lot of outsiders, there was a lot of idol worship that took place there. And this helps us to understand why when Jesus casts out demons and encounters the demonic, it's in this region where he does it. In the Gospel of John, you don't see any demon exorcisms, because the Gospel of John is more focused on Jerusalem to the south, where there's more of a purely Jewish population. Now, the fact that demon possession accompanies Gentiles kind of gives us some insight into what leads to demon possession. I'll take you to a couple of texts that kind of explain it. Deuter Deuteronomy 32, 17, uh, Moses relates how Israel tested the Lord in the wilderness with their worship. He writes, they sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods they had never known, to new gods they had recently come, that had come recently, whom your fathers have never dreaded, right? They sacrificed to demons. When they were sacrificing to idols, they were sacrificing to demons. 
Psalm 106, 36 to 37. They served their idols, which became a snare to them, and they sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. Again, when they're worshiping a false idol, they are worshiping a demon. And that's not just in the Old Testament. A really fascinating passage is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Uh, this is when Paul is correcting the Corinthians on their abuse and abuse of the Lord's table. And he says this, No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. All this to say, some of them were being involved in some pagan feast that would worship the gods of the region. And Paul is saying that when you're worshiping those gods, who are you worshiping? You're worshiping demons. Has it ever occurred to you that witch doctors might have real power? That perhaps part of the pull of idolatrous worship is that when you worship this idol, something supernaturally actually happens. Because you're not just worshiping some idea. Satan and his minions in his attempt to deceive the population may have this idol of Aphrodite is really a demon. And the demon hears, listens, and does what it can to give you the illusion that you have power when you worship it. So that is the context. That is where Jesus is doing ministry. We read on. So he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. So again, Jesus would walk into a synagogue. They would read the scripture, and he would explain it. And this is kind of the, the general custom of the day, right? They would read Scripture, have it interpreted from, from Hebrew to Aramaic, the local tongue. And normally, this is what they do after that. They would also consult the Talmud and give a uh, running commentary on this Scripture from the Talmud. And you think, well, what's the Talmud? Well, the Talmud is a, a collection of writings that are a commentary on the Mishnah. Oh, that's helpful. What's the Mishnah? Well, I'll explain. You see, the Jews believed that when God gave the law to them, he also gave them specific ways to apply the law, the tradition of the elders. And so when he gave the law about the Sabbath, as Moses wrote that down, their belief was there was also further instructions about what it meant to keep the Sabbath. And so that was the tradition of the elders. And so that is the mission. And the Talmud recorded this oral tradition and then there was a running commentary on this oral tradition to explain how it, let's say, harmonizes with the law itself. And so if you are a 10-year-old boy and you are sitting in on this synagogue service, the scriptures are read in a language you don't understand. It's then translated into a language you do understand. And then you listen to the rabbi drone on and on about this commentary on the commentary on the scripture. But today's different. A new sheriff is in town. Jesus walks in. You heard about him. You immediately perk up. Somebody reads the scripture. They translate it, and he gets up. 
And he's not talking about the Talmud. He's not talking about the Mishnah. He's talking about the text of Scripture. He's even challenging the tradition of the elders. And get this, he's actually illustrating it with these things called parables. And everyone is just astonished because they haven't heard this teaching before. What is this new teaching? Right, Jesus is clearly in command of the room. He has a commanding presence that is challenged in verse 33. And in the synagogue, there was a man who had a spirit of an unclean demon. Now, Luke's making it very clear. This man didn't just have a spirit. He had an unclean spirit. And not just an unclean spirit, but the unclean spirit of a demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know you. You are the Holy One of God. He makes three statements. Can you imagine, like, all of a sudden Jesus is preaching, and boom, there's this loud voice, otherworldly voice, and he says three things. Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Leave us alone. Have you come to destroy us? Now, there's some question about who is this demon speaking for. Is he speaking for all of the demons? Well, I think that would be true if that were the case. But I think there's another angle here, especially in light of the fact that Luke draws attention to the demon leaving the body of the host and the host being unharmed that this may be kind of a blurring of the lines of personalities where this demon is speaking on behalf of the host as well. That perhaps the host believed that the demon were to leave the body, it would destroy the host. He's hostage. And thirdly, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Now, is that a true statement? It is. Did you know that demons actually have really good theology? What? They do. James 2.19. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. They know that polytheism is all just a ruse. They know that when people bow down and worship them, they're not worshiping the one true God. They know that there is one God. And they know that Jesus is the holy one of God. Now, from all of this, we can make some conclusions about what it means to be demon-possessed, right? Sometimes we use this term loosely. You might see somebody coming off a drug trip, and you think, they must be demon-possessed. Your three-year-old throwing a tantrum, and you're thinking about calling an exorcist, right? Maybe they're demon-possessed. So we can kind of throw that term around, but I think it's good to have some clarity here. Uh, there's three traits that we see in just about all demon possession. Uh, But I'm going to just focus on this one. Number one, there's a combination of symptoms uh, of of some sort of physical malady. Now, the fact that they seem to be linked, the demon and the man seem to be linked, so that the man would be harmed if the exorcism happens implies that there might have been some, some torment involved in it. There's a desire for the demon to do this man harm. 
you see that later on in the Gerasian demoniac, that there was all kinds of physical pain and affliction upon this man. Secondly, there is a distinct presence of another personality. He's speaking in another voice. He's not speaking for the host. There's a demon inside the man, and the demon inside the man uses a man's mouth and tongue and vocal cords to say what he wants to say. And thirdly, there's some sort of, sort of clairvoyance, uh, the presence of supernatural knowledge. This demon is able to discern the supernatural identity of Jesus because demons talk and demons communicate. And so this demon-possessed man challenges Jesus in the synagogue. This is the site of a confrontation. Verse 35, but Jesus rebuked him saying, be silent and come out of him. And the demon had thrown him down in their midst. He came out of him, having done him no harm. And so this demon interrupts Jesus's sermon, right? Strike one, right? Then Jesus tells him to be silent. In other words, stop talking to me and telling everyone that I'm the Holy One of God. Now, why did he say be silent? Number one, calling Jesus the Holy One of God at the wrong time might give the audience the wrong expectation, right? They're all looking for some sort of revolutionary, someone who's going to lead them to overcome the Roman government and reestablish the Golden Age in Jerusalem. Now, that is not something Jesus is going to do yet. He had a different agenda. He had to reset their expectations, and by Spilling the beans too early would stop with a strategic rollout. Secondly, Jesus was planning on having the Holy Spirit testify about him and these realities through his works, not through an unclean spirit. Thirdly, a demonic endorsement is not the best way to rise in popularity. It'd be like this. You want to run for... Congress. You raise the money, you come up with some commercials, and then a super PAC that's funded by the Russian government has a 30-second commercial where Vladimir Putin personally endorses you for Congress. And he says all these wonderful things about you, which are all true, by the way. Would you want that commercial to be run? <laughs> it may be true, but considering the source you'll take a pass. And thirdly, or I guess fourthly, this is actually a hostage situation, right? Where this demon has taken control of this person and is really undercutting the priority of Jesus's ministry, which is to give liberty to the oppressed, to give liberty to the oppressed. This man's clearly oppressed, and Jesus has come to set this man free, not to let him to just take a pass. So you're in the synagogue, you're hearing the best sermon of your life, and all of a sudden there's this confrontation, and you're like, where's the popcorn? This will be epic. Because in that day and age, uh, like when we think of exorcisms, you think about the holy water, you know, the power of Christ compels you, the cross, and you have all these other things. They kind of had the same type of thing, but in a Jewish fashion. Uh, the Jewish historian Josephus tells us that, that they would take a ring and kind of like rub an herb on it, 
And then they would take the man who's demon-possessed and put the ring underneath his nostrils. And it's like they're going to pull the demon out through the nasal cavity. Then they'd use chants, splash water, like invoke the name of Solomon. And so a lot of it was they were going to do this whole special process to get the person out, right? There's a, there's a sense of drama. Is it going to work or not? And so this is how Jesus exercises the demon. Be silent and come out of him. Boom. That's it. You're like, that's it? He just says, shut up and get out of him. Now, normally when there's like some sort of you know, exorcism, you want something at least dramatic, right? Like an extended fight scene where you know that the hero clearly has greater ability than the bad guy, but the bad guy cheats to kind of level the odds. But there is no fight scene. It's just Jesus, by his own authority, not using spells, not calling on the spirits, not trying to coerce this person out of the other person. He just uses his authority. But there is some drama. Remember, the demon says, have you, have you come to destroy us? What's going to happen to this man who has been demon-possessed? And now he's thrown on the ground in the middle of the synagogue, shaking violently, and, and is he going to be okay? And when he stops shaking, he came out of him, and the guy comes to his senses, and there is no harm. This is to the relief of everyone. Here you have Delta Force Jesus successfully rescuing a hostage. On October 27, 2020, Philip Walton was working on his farm when six armed men tried to steal from him, and when he didn't have enough money, they kidnapped him and communicated to his father that they demanded a ransom of $1 million. Four days later, a group of 30 operators from SEAL Team 6 parachuted into the region. They located him took out six of the seven hostage takers, hiked three miles through the jungle to the extraction point, and rescued John Walton. Now, that mission would not have been successful if they just took out the hostage takers, right? It would only be successful if the one taking hostage was rescued without harm. In the same way, you see Jesus working through this hostage situation not only expels the demon who took him hostage, but he frees the man so that no harm will come to him. Now, after all of this, the people come to some conclusions. They were amazed, verse 36, and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands unclean spirits, and they come out. And the report about him went into every place in the surrounding region. Right, Jesus doesn't try to get a bigger spirit to get the lesser spirit out. He just uses his own authority. And, and what you see is, is Jesus is making a statement, right? This is the first miracle in Luke. And you go back to the temptations. Remember the first temptation? Or actually the second temptation? In Luke 4, 5 through 8. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. 
and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I will give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. See, Satan is a paper tiger. He talks a big game. Jesus has, just has to say a word and is out. In Luke 4, 18 through 19, his first sermon was, that's recorded is, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Right? He's a man who's going to set those who are oppressed at liberty. And what's more oppressive than having your will dominated and controlled by a demon? And this would make quite an impression on the audience of Luke. Remember who Luke was written to? It's Theophilus. He's probably a, a Greek convert who lived in a world where demon possession was a fearful reality. I mean, can you imagine living in Galilee at this time, where all these new people are becoming possessed by demons? You don't want to go by the garrisons, because apparently there is this naked man who rages all night, who, does, who attacks people, right? That's like the local monster. You stay away from him. Did you hear about Simeon's daughter? Yeah, she started a relationship with this, with this Greek guy, and, and next thing you know, she's been different. We think that she might have a demon. And all around the community, there is this dark force where all of a sudden people are being zapped and becoming demon-possessed in the region. Do you think that would be a fearful time? That was a world, exactly. That's the world that they live in. And then all of a sudden, this man, Jesus Christ, demon slayer, comes in and he liberates somebody. And he doesn't do it by all these rituals and incantations and, you know, using the ring to pull the demon out. He does it by his own authority. It's not even close. And what would happen? The reports about him went into, out in, the reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. In our midst, there is somebody who is mightier than the demons. Now, that was back then. And when you kind of look at even our society, there have been seasons uh, where there is an increased interest in the demonic. In 1973, that's when The Exorcist came out. But during that time, theological liberalism just gutted the church. Many people in the main line were taught not to believe in the authority of God's word. Miracles cannot happen. Science explains everything. If you want to have uh, your soul cared for, turn to a psychiatrist, uh, not a priest, not a pastor. And naturally, this kind of left some emptiness. And, and so during the late 60s and early 70s, there was a rise in the occult. There was more interest in those things. Now, in our day and age, we're seeing the same thing happen. At the beginning of the pandemic, there is a measurable increase in occult curiosity. There is a hashtag witch talk that has 
2.5 billion views. The Atlantic ran a profile a couple years ago on a professional witch who will cast spells for a fee. And in a promotional email, she writes, last month, we had four pregnancies, 33 job promotions, 12 business startups, 12 wedding proposals, and four court wins. And what people speculate is that when, when there is a diminished view of God, and there is societal chaos and instability, people feel insecure, and so they want to go to higher powers, but they don't want to go to the highest power. And so with this diminished religion, they try to figure out, well, maybe we can manipulate the spirit world to help us get what we want. And you see, and that's often what magic is, right? You, you get this greater spirit to take out this little spirit, or you know that this spirit will give you this if you go ahead and bribe them with the sacrifice. And so it's all about trying to manipulate the spirit world against each other so that you can get what you want. And really at the center of that religion is who? It's you. It, it promises a degree of control. And in the ancient world, that was how they viewed religion. They, they didn't necessarily view the one true God of Israel. The Jews did, but everybody else, well, they would resort to the spirits. Suetonius tells us that Nero solicited the rights of Magi to escape from his mother's ghost. Senators and peasants would both wear amulets to, to ward off evil spirits. And so there was a real concern that you would be afflicted by a demon, you'd be afflicted by a spirit. And so when, when Paul, for instance, talks about the liberating power of the gospel, one of the elements that you can be liberated from is control of the spirit world. Now, Jason stole my thunder a little bit, but that's okay. Let's turn to Colossians 2, 8 through 14. Now, in the context, Paul is talking to a church under assault from false teaching, and he's explaining the sufficiency of Christ, that Christ is all you need. Christ is more than enough. And he, he makes one of the great statements about what Christ did for us on the cross. We'll start in verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world. And not according to Christ, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us of all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Our sin condemns us to die. Jesus died condemned for our sin. And God in rising, raising him from the dead 
verifies that it's been paid in full and all those who believe and have faith in him can have that same resurrection life. And as he did it, this is the result. Verse 2.15. And when he had disarmed the rulers and authorities. Remember that passage from Ephesians? Rulers and authorities. This is talking about the demonic realm. He made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Now, there is a real rich irony in this passage. From the view of the demonic, at the time it happened, the cross was their greatest triumph. Here you have the king of Israel, the holy one of God, right? The demon confesses that. He is stripped down. He is stripped down. He is disarmed. This holy one of God is not only disarmed, he is publicly displayed. Everyone sees his humiliation. And this is their greatest triumph. But there's actually a reversal. You see, Jesus was actually disarming them on the cross by defeating the power of sin and death, which they used to control humans and humanity. He makes a public display of them where this will be their ultimate humiliation, and he will triumph over them. And triumph is a fascinating word. One of my, fam- my favorite Roman concepts, right, before they had let's say Fox News or some other news outlet to announce good news of some military victory, they would have a grand military parade where they would take the captive soldiers. They would have reenactors who would perform uh, reenactments of some of the great battles on rolling stages. They would parade the conquered foes and the conquered king. And then they would bring the Roman general up the rear There's a grand celebration of his triumph. Well, that is what happened on the cross. Jesus defeated them all. And that's why John can say in John 4, 4, Little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. 1 Peter 5, 8-9. Be sober-minded, be watchful, Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Right? When you are redeemed, when you are changed, when you are transformed, God is with you. Jesus, the demon slayer, is your greatest ally. 1 John 519, we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Even though Christians are protected from the evil one, this world is still under the power of the evil one. And what do you think Satan wants to do with this world? He seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. And he he has a variety of tactics. Uh, If people in the West don't want to believe in demons and don't want to believe in Satan, I'm pretty sure Satan would be fine with that. Because they are rejecting a biblical worldview. There's no such thing as supernatural. Demon's like, okay, if that's where you are, we'll just go ahead and leave these people there. And I think that's why when people become open to this possibility, 
it basically explains that the Bible does more than just kind of tell stories. This was not conjured up by some rotten-toothed shepherds who sat around the campfire in ancient Israel and decided to invent a religion. It's the testimony from God that informs our world. Now, I came across a Washington Post article, about six years old, written by a man named Richard Gallagher. I'm going to just read this at length. In the late 1980s, I was introduced to a self-styled satanic high priestess. She called herself a witch and dressed the part. With flowing dark clothes and black eyeshadow around her temples, in our many discussions, she acknowledged worshiping Satan as his queen. I'm a man of science and a lover of history. After studying classics at Princeton, I trained in psychiatry at Yale and in psychoanalysis at Columbia. That background is why a Catholic priest had asked my professional opinion, which I offered pro bono, about whether this woman was suffering from a mental disorder. This was at the height of the national panic about Satanism. So I was inclined to skepticism, but my subject's behavior exceeded what I could explain with my training. She could tell some people their secret weaknesses, such as undue pride. She knew how the individual she'd never known had died, including my mother and her fatal case of ovarian cancer. Six people later vouched to me that during her exorcisms, they heard her speaking multiple languages, including Latin, completely unfamiliar to her outside her trances. This was not psychosis. It was what I can only describe as paranormal activity. I concluded that she was possessed. And what's interesting is he goes on to explain that many of his colleagues have similar conclusions. They don't say that everyone who claims to be demon-possessed are actually demon-possessed. But they have seen enough to know that this is a real phenomenon. Now, I don't say this to spook you, but I say this because this can actually happen. It can actually happen. Now, I could tell you, stay away from tarot cards, don't worship idols, and hopefully this will never happen to you. But there is a better hope out there for you if you are concerned about the presence of, of, of demons and possibly being demon-possessed. And we will turn to Matthew 12, 43 through 45. Now, in this passage, Jesus reviles the hypocrisy of the Jews. You see, they thought that they were pretty holy because unlike their Old Testament counterparts, they left idol worship behind a long, long time ago. And yet, they are rejecting Christ unlike these idol-worshipping Canaanites, or sorry, these idol-worshipping uh, people from Galilee. So unlike the Ninevites and the Queen of Sheba, these Jews cleanse themselves from external idolatry since the exile, but their repentance has not reached full term. And this is what he says. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through the waterless places, seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came, and when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there, and the last state of the person is worse than the first, so be with his evil generation. 
He's basically saying moral reform without internal transformation will never hold. And he uses the example of demon possession, which he just executed in their midst. Now, now by implication, what he's saying is this. It's not enough to just change your behavior. Even if an exorcist were to draw out a demon, that person is unprotected until somebody else moves in, and that would be the Holy Spirit. When someone comes to Christ, when they place their faith in Jesus Christ and turn to Him, they become born again, and when you become born again, the Holy Spirit now dwells inside of you. And if the Holy Spirit dwells inside of you, there is no space for a demon to inhabit your heart. You can still be afflicted. You can still be tempted. There's all kinds of things that they'll want to do to you, but they will never possess you. Because when Jesus is in your heart, there's no room for anyone else. So that's the hope, right? The hope is when you trust Jesus, you are demon-proof. And this is a comfort to many people who live in different parts of the world where there is a fear of the demonic. I came across a couple of hymns from Africa. I wanted to share them with you. The first is from Ghana. If Satan troubles us, Jesus Christ, you are the lion of the grasslands. You whose claws are sharp will tear out his entrails and leave them on the ground for the flies to eat. They sing that in church. Here's one from South Africa. Jesus is the conqueror. By his resurrection, he overcame death itself. By his resurrection, he overcame all things. He overcame magic. He overcame amulets and charms. He overcame the darkness of demon possession. He overcame dread. When we are with him, we also conquer, right? If Jesus is on your side, who can be against you? Certainly not demons, Satan, death, or sin. Where's the first John 4, 4? Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Let's pray. Well, Father, we come before you grateful for the protection that is given to us. Lord, we know that those who are born again, who have been changed and transformed and have submitted ourselves to you, have experienced a miracle of regeneration. We are now filled with the Holy Spirit occupied in our hearts. And Lord, I, I pray for those who are on the outside looking in, that you will move them to want to turn to you for protection, to turn to Jesus we know that demon possession and just the supernatural and just all those manifestations are terrible, horrible, but they're also warnings of what the enemy of our souls wants to do to us. And I pray that this reality will cause us to draw closer to you and that we'll enjoy the sweet protection that's offered to us by Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name.